And tonight, it's my privilege to welcome Philip Napoli, uh, professor at Fordham, and his titles, his various titles are on the screen, so I won't, I won't rehearse those. Philip's work has, um, has focused on the transition from legacy media to new media contexts in two broad ways. Um, he's looked a lot at the audience, and, and that's what we'll hear some of tonight. So a lot of this has been on audience paradigms, audience economics, uh, metric systems, the works there. And secondly, a lot of his work is focused on policy. And his work there is kind of at the intersection of, uh, puts him at the intersection of policy makers, policy advocates and, and activists, and of course the industry. And his work has been very influential both with the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. Um, Philip has research partnerships with groups such as the Center for American Progress, the Minority Media and Telecommunications Council, Center for Creative Voices in Media, and the Open Society Institute. His books include Audience Evolution, these are two from this year, Audience Evolution, New Technologies and the Transformation of Media Audiences, Columbia just put that out, and with his colleague, uh, Professor Alzma, uh, Communications Research in Action, Scholar Activist Collaborations for a Democratic Public Sphere, which just came out with Fordham. He also edited uh, Media Diversity and Localism, Meaning and Metrics, 2007, and another book with Columbia Audience Economics back in 2003. So, Philip. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. As you mentioned, one of our illustrious contributors, Communications Research in Action, is, is right back there, Sasha. Um, it's good to see him again. Um, I'm going to start today first by explaining that, the term in quotes just so I understand um, sort of the, the perspective that I'm interested in. Uh, when I say I, I do research on, on media audiences because sometimes uh, it's, it's, it's a bit uh, confusing. It's really less that I'm interested in audiences than I'm interested in how media organizations, media markets, etc., essentially make sense of audiences. Uh, how do they factor into um, their operations? And that's where I, and this term comes from some work by, by Jim Edema uh, and Charles Whitney on, on, on that process of, 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 of how audiences essentially get shoehorned into the operations of different types of, of, of media sectors. And so that's what we mean by uh, institutionally uh, effective audiences. Um, really as, as a set of established practices and or uh, behavioral patterns uh, as conceptualized by media organizations, advertisers, audience measurement firms, media buyers, uh, etc. So when I, so for example, with the, the book I'll, I'll talk a little bit about today, Audience Evolution, it's about how those processes of understanding and conceptualizing audiences uh, have evolved over time and most importantly, what are the factors that trigger uh, sort of evolutionary changes. Okay, uh, so that's just to, to give you a sense of, 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 of the approach I'm taking and what I'm, I'm going to be talking about today. Um, I use a term in my work um, for, for a, a sort of one lens into understanding the in, um, institutionally effective audiences, this notion of what I call audience information systems. Uh, and by that, we essentially mean systems that not only, and that it's, it's not just audience measurement. We think about audience measurement, we often think primarily about systems that are designed to, to measure uh, audiences' exposure. Things like Nielsen ratings and Arbitron ratings and Comscore uh, ratings online, uh, services like that. Uh, but in, in my research, I'm interested in looking uh, more broadly at systems that are increasingly developing to capture 
a variety of other dimensions of, we might use the term audiencehood, uh, anticipation about content, feedback, uh, levels of appreciation, attitude change, behavioral responses. Uh, there's a wide range of, of, of systems, both sort of established and emerging, that are designed to capture uh, all these other aspects of, uh, of the audience. And that's why I, I, I use that terminology throughout uh, my, my, um, this, this type of work. Um, so my plan today is to give a little background, talk about some relevant theoretical frameworks for, for the work, uh, some research questions in the method. I emphasize right out this is a work that is uh, very much uh, a work in progress, so a lot of what I'm presenting is, is very pr preliminary in, in that regard, and the project uh, hopefully will be done closer to, uh, to March, but I wanted to give, show you sort of some work that was uh, in the pipeline uh, at this point. Uh, again, so I'll talk about some of the preliminary observations I've got from the information I've been gathering thus far, uh, and then talk about the implications uh, as I see them, and uh, and, and hope, uh, and I'm, I'm no doubt um, you all will be able to sort of help me think about these uh, these issues in new ways, and perhaps pursue some uh, some additional directions that I'm not thinking of. Uh, I want to I start then with this notion of, of market information regimes, which comes out of uh, cultural sociology. Uh, regularly updated information about market activity provided by an independent supplier, et cetera. You see how that goes. And really what this is about, this is some cultural sociologists who've tried to make sense of the systems that are in place that help stakeholders in any market make sense of how they're doing and how their competitors are doing. Um, you know, it could apply to something as, as, as we're as familiar with as the U.S. News and World Report ratings for colleges and universities, uh, and so uh, or something like Nielsen ratings or something like bestseller lists, all those sorts of things, essentially that help participants make sense of uh, the market in which they're operating, how they're how they're performing how, relative to uh, to their competitors, uh, and the key point is to recognize that these become vital lenses to, under, to, to sense making essentially and that any changes, this is the, the process of financing, any changes to how these market information regimes are constructed uh, can often have very interesting ramifications in that they can produce entirely new portraits of who's succeeding, who's failing, what's popular, what's not popular. Uh, and so they become uh, these, these, uh, the, these guideposts for all sorts uh, of decision making. Uh, and so understanding the dynamics behind their construction uh, is to me a, a sort of interesting and useful lens to understanding uh, how media organizations and media markets uh, operate. Um, there was a great example of, from some research a number of years back that showed, for example, that when Billboard changed its methodology for computing uh, the best-selling albums uh, back in the, in the, in the, in the 1980s, uh, it suddenly produced a completely different portrait of what was popular. And I remember that specifically because I was living in Boston in the early 90s when the ripple effects even reached the Boston market. So in this case, suddenly the Billboard charts showed country music was popular. And they weren't, it wasn't showing as popular before because the old methodology didn't adequately represent certain areas of the country. Uh, and so when that changed, suddenly country music at the top of the charts, 
radio stations all around the country start saying, hmm, maybe this country format is the way to go. And Boston was the last market, major market in the country to give in with the country music format. And I remember it was a, it was, it must have been 1992, and when there was, it was a big deal that there was a country music format uh, in Boston. But it was that sort of ripple effect essentially from a change in how we constructed what was and what was not popular uh, in the music space. Uh, so, so that's what we mean by this idea of, uh, of, of market information regimes, essentially how uh, cognitions are formed about how, uh, how, how markets are, are operating. Uh, this is an issue, as, as we mentioned, I addressed in, in, in a book in 2003, and then it, uh, more recently, very focused on the issue of how new technologies are changing uh, approaches to constructing media audiences. Uh, and as often happens, I was telling somebody early about this today, it is typical, right? This is a book that was published in 2011, which meant I actually finished it, you know, given, well, it must have been 1998, right? The way academic publishers operate. Uh, but no, it was maybe 2010. Uh, and in that time, there's already been a, a variety of issues that I, I just need to get into in more detail. Uh, so in this case, which has happened a couple times now, which is the book actually is representing sort of the beginning of a research program rather than sort of the, the culmination uh, of a research program. So it's a, a, a jumping off point for this particular project that I'm going to be talking uh, about today. Uh, but to give you some background, sort of, sort of the framework that, uh, that I'm applying, this is a model I developed in the, in the book. Uh, and it's meant to be applicable not just to what's happening now, but I'll use the contemporary developments as, a, as, as, the, as the example that I walk through, but to have some applicability to points in time in the past and ideally also uh, going forward. Uh, but the idea is that the, sort of the institutionally effective audience um, is being reconfigured due to a number of things. Uh, one is a transformation in the dynamics of how we consume media, not only consume media, but also produce media. Uh, and in this particular case, there are the key factors at issue are, uh, one, um, the fragmentation of audiences both within and across media platforms, which essentially has just, can't even, you know, exaggerate the extent to which it's sort of destroying traditional approaches to audience understanding. Uh, to give you an example, uh, we all know, right, we have 500 plus, the number is 637 or something now that are actually um, television networks that are available uh, in the U.S. But what we might make people know is that actually only 80 of those um, have Nielsen ratings that they can report. The rest, essentially, and you're probably familiar with that sort of long tail model, the rest of them reside so far down in the tail that the, the panel-based systems for trying to understand who's consuming what um, just can't accurately project from these tiny audiences. And you, you apply the same thing in the online space, and it's even worse, of course. So there's these large areas of what I call dark matter, essentially unmeasured audiences, audiences where we know that they're there, but we don't know anything about them. And this gets amplified. If you, you, you know, today, I'm, I'm focusing on television. You take television viewing, and you put it on an iPad, or you put it on a mobile device, or anything like that. The process for sort of capturing audience attention and aggregating it, quantifying it, has just cannot keep up, has not been able to keep up for a variety of reasons, which is even a separate topic and interesting in its own right. Uh, and that has essentially created one of the conditions necessary for this process of evolution to take place, which is essentially a, um, a sort of a consensus lack of satisfaction with the established approaches to understanding audiences. Uh, but 
the second condition that needs to be in place, which is also the key condition that's in place now, is that there are new analytical approaches to understanding audiences that can be implemented um, efficiently. Uh, and so what we're seeing today uh, is that, in fact, uh, this is where it gets into the, the primary focus of the, t of the talk uh, uh, you know, going forward. Uh, for example, social media content serving as, a, as an input, as data to form a new way of, of, of understanding audiences. And that's actually just one of a number I get into in the, in the book of a number of new data flows that are, can be brought to bear to, to reconceptualize what the audience is from the standpoint of what's being bought and sold in these marketplaces. Uh, so there's sort of the, that you have to have a, a, the problem and the solution both presenting themselves at the same time. And I emphasize that just to give you as, as, as an example, you might say, well, you know, that at any time really the, there could have been an evolution beyond sort of the traditional approach and just, you know, focusing on audiences exposure, you know, men, women, 18 to 34, how many people watched or listened or, or what have you. But if you go back, for example, to the 1980s, uh, when the Markle Foundation tried to fund a, a competing audience measurement system that was going to be based not on audience size, but on audience appreciation of the content, and it was actually very rigorously implemented, uh, the market just ignored it. And the reason was there was no problem yet needing to be solved. Now there is a problem. Now advertisers, uh, content providers, everyone is in agreement that the status quo is, is in, insufficient. Uh, so these two forces interact with each other, and I have in there, you know, you know, containing all of this, those processes of stakeholder resistance and negotiation that I talk about a fair bit in the book, which range from ways in which audiences' behavior can be constrained by particular uh, issues, uh, as well as ways in which gathering information about audiences can be constrained, whether it's by policy, whether it is by um, you know certain competitive dynamics. So, for example, we've often seen in the audience measurement space um, that let's say if you are amongst the most popular television networks, you are not exactly interested in seeing Nielsen upgrade its measurement system because you don't know. The new system might in fact produce a portrait of your audience that is um, you know, uh, smaller, less, uh, less demographically appealing than the, than the existing system. And so we've seen that find its way all the way into the policy space in recent years with the local people meter initiative that Nielsen uh, put forth that, uh, that uh, there were congressional hearings about uh, misrepresentation of certain audience segments. It happened at, with radio in the exact same way with Arbitron. Uh, you know, state attorneys generals getting involved. So there are all these interesting processes of stakeholder resistance and negotiation. Uh, in TV, some of you may have followed the migration to the C3. How many know, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the C3 rating. The C3 rating is essentially now we don't, television programs are not rated on the size of the audience of the program. They're rated on the size of the audience of the commercial. So the commercial audience within three days. And that itself was the outgrowth of this very contentious process of negotiation because in fact, there are data, there's data available for seven days, but uh, advertisers only wanted to pay for live audiences. Con uh, programmers wanted to be able to charge for audiences within the full seven-day window that Nielsen measures, and the compromise position was the C3. So the, you know, when these things are being used as, as currencies in the marketplace, it's important to recognize all the different stakeholder dynamics that are brought to bear that influence um, the final outcome. 
uh, and then the end result is this notion of an evolved audience, a, a different way of, of, of conceptualizing and valuing audiences. And that's what I argue in, the, in this book that we're in the midst of right now. Uh, and it, it's a key outgrowth of the, the various technological changes that we're all very familiar with that are affecting our, our media system. Uh, and to put this, try to do this a bit uh, visually, um, we can think of exposure almost at, at sort of at the at the core of what we think of when we think of, of the audience. Uh, but we can think of that as, the audience almost as a as a process, uh, the process of of, of consuming media, uh, beginning with awareness, which then presumably, if it is indeed the case, leads to interest, which then leads to exposure, uh, and then leads to a variety of other factors. I, in, in this model that I developed, I put attentiveness and loyalty as sort of parallel to exposure because there's a long history of efforts to try to extract those concepts, those constructs from something, from, from basic exposure data. So for example, uh, we see this on, uh, you know, you hear the terminology used online for, you know, stickiness. Uh, that that, you know, the stickiness, the longer you spend on a site is presumably some measure of how attentive you are. And that's how it tends to be marketed. Now, of course, you could argue that maybe you're sitting on that site a long time because you just, you, you know, it bored you and you went off and did something else and you left the computer and you just left it set to that site. You know, there's all different interpretations. Uh, or how frequently you visit a site or how frequently you watch a program as a measure of loyalty. So those are derived from sort of exposure measures, so to speak. But then we can get beyond exposure. We can get into how we then react to the content once we're exposed to it. This could be how much we appreciate it, what kind of emotional response uh, it evokes in us. Then beyond that, do we recall it? Did it produce any kind of attitude change? And then ultimately, might there have been any behaviors that result? And I put all of those within an overarching concept of engagement. One of the things I was doing in my research for the past few years was spending a lot of time doing participant observation uh, data gathering in, uh, in a lot of the um, industry association meetings and, uh, and events where this, this you know, debate over how engagement should be de defined was taking place. Uh, and it sort of became this de facto term that everybody agreed was going to represent the step beyond exposure and understanding audiences in, in the marketplace, uh, but there were literally hundreds of definitions being put forth of what engagement should mean. And it's an it's interesting concept. You can pour in your own sort of notions of what engagement can or, or should mean to you. I haven't tried to offer up what I think it should mean. I'm just trying here to, to represent the fact that it means just about anything. And there's all sorts of, um, you know, engagement products being offered. Uh, my, my favorite, um, and this is, uh, is, is if you get a chance, visit a website called uh, rewardtv.com. And if you go to rewardtv.com, you'll be asked to take a quiz about a show. Uh, maybe you've watched it. And, and in fact, however many questions you get right is in fact a measure that Nielsen is gathering of how engaged you were in that show. They'll ask you questions about individual commercials and then see how, if you remembered product placement, et cetera. So, you know, it's these little quizzes and that is, in fact, rewardtv.com is a, is a Nielsen-operated website, and all that data gets aggregated. And, in fact, we're seeing in the industry uh, some networks guarantee, just like we've often had ratings guarantees, we guarantee you X number of viewers, will guarantee X level of score on this engagement measure. Now, you might be asking, you know, just how well a bunch of people take a quiz about a show, a, a useful measure of engagement. Would you spend money based on that information? Well, 
People are, uh, and, and uh, you know, for better or for worse. And to me, that tells us something about the state of, of this audience marketplace now, where there's this real um, casting about for alternatives because the established system is, 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 is collapsing under the weight of inter and intramedia uh, fragmentation. Um, okay. Uh, so, to sort of one final, so as I'll start to illustrate in a second, all of this stuff, and this is the big difference from in years past, all of this information on this right side here, even on the, on the left side before exposure, is now capturable in ways that were not before. And that's what's driving um, this, this process to a certain degree. Um, if you think about the traditional audience marketplace being one in which exposure, what was essentially being bought and sold, uh, the post-exposure audience marketplace is one in which exposure still matters, but matters less and is being supplemented by alternative conceptualizations of the, of the audience. Uh, so I sort of try to represent it uh, that way. Okay. So this is sort of, again, sort of a, you know, the, the context for the current project, which is looking specifically at the role social media is playing in, in this, this current process of audience evolution. Uh, how does the representation and, and possible misrepresentation of social media constructed audiences compare to previous constructions? Uh, and here again, the idea is that it's, it's, these are constructions that are being gathered from social media activity that are be then being used to provide estimates of the performance of, of television programs across whatever platform they may be consumed. Uh, how are social media constructed television audiences becoming institutionalized? This is where we get to these issues of stakeholder resistance and negotiation to some extent. Uh, and then lastly, what are the cultural implications of this reconstitution of the institutionally effective television audience? And this is where we get to the issues I find interesting of what, does, what might it mean for the decision-making surrounding content production? Um, what does it mean? What, will, what, will, what kind of content will help be helped? What kind of content might be harmed as the overall audience marketplace starts um, broadening, essentially, the range of, of, of criteria uh, for audience value that are, that are taken into consideration? Uh, I'm approaching this a, a few different ways. Uh, analysis of a wide range of materials ranging from, uh, from white papers and trade press to promotional and marketing materials to the actual um, reports that are being generated by, as I'll show you in a few minutes, a growing array of, of, of providers that are trying to capture uh, this aspect of, of, of the television audience. Uh, also interviews, I mean, the, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about today are so I'm going to pull out some selected quotes from the interviews that I've, I've conducted thus far with as, as a diverse array of stakeholders as I'm going to be able to, uh, to, to capture, ranging from media buyers to measurement folks to content providers to even folks in the media, race, race, uh, uh, media rating council, which is in theory sort of the regulatory body that oversees uh, these businesses. Uh, and then the part I'm particularly excited about, which I haven't, I haven't done this before in this type of work, is to bring different stakeholders together into focus groups to see what kind of issues emerge in conversations about this transition. Uh, I think that will be a way of producing some insights, some, some of the conflicts, I think, that might not uh, emerge through standard uh, sort of interview uh, practices. So uh, trying, trying to pull information from a variety of different um, sources. 
Uh, and this, this project is being funded by the, the Time Warner Research Program on, on Digital Communications, um, which was, uh, I was very excited that they thought that this was a line of, of research worth, um, worth continuing. Uh, it's also being incorporated into something uh, called the Transforming Audiences, Transforming Societies uh, initiative uh, that's taking place in Europe. COS is the European Cooperation on, uh, in Science and Technology. Uh, and I just find it very interesting. I, I, I find this happens a lot, especially with my research in the policy area, that they seem to be in asking much more interesting questions <laughs> in Europe than here uh, in, in a lot of these areas. But in this case, what they're particularly interested in um, is... This is sort of the, uh, the mission statement for the cost initiative, and the interviews that I'm doing are going to be part of one of the reports um, that are being produced in what is a multi-nation uh, project that they uh, initiated there. Uh, but I think this is very interesting that they want to understand the key transformations of audiences within a changing media and communication environment and their interrelationships with the social, cultural, and political areas of European society. So it's nice that they let an American like me sort of weasel in onto, uh, onto this process, uh, project, but uh, I'm excited to be able to, to contribute to it. Uh, so we start as, as, as our baseline for this transition. Uh, again, just, just so everyone understands what we mean when we talk about traditional exposure-focused approaches uh, to, to audiences, it's traditionally been a process of gathering what is presumably a representative sample uh, and creating a large panel. We're talking about panels in, in the millions uh, when we're talking about online audience measurement. When we're talking about television audience measurement in the U.S., we're now talking about a national panel of 20,000 homes. Uh, and as you can imagine, when you take 20,000 homes uh, and start stretching those folks out across the 600 plus networks that they could be watching, you start to get a lot of small cells, uh, so to speak. Uh, but this, and, and amazingly, at the local level, this may come as a shock to you, in most of the local markets in, in the U.S., you still keep a paper diary. And you carry it around with you, uh, and you write down everything you watch, and at the end of the week you mail it in, and that gets tabulated, and that becomes the way in which the television audience is represented. Uh, and it only happens in many of these markets four times a year, so which actually means, in theory, those uh, stations in those markets could air the test pattern the other eight months out of the year. It's only these four, you know, four one-month periods in which these audiences are measured. So there's all sorts of interesting sort of large market versus small market gaps in how audiences are measured. The top 30 markets in this country, on the other hand, do have set top meters, and the smaller ones still rely on diaries. Uh, but it's all, has always been in this country explicitly about measuring program exposure via panel-based systems. And that's, that's, that's the, the methodology that is um, breaking down. And this is why there's this search, a wide-ranging search for, for, at the very least, supplements. So when we go beyond exposure, we're talking about new types of currencies. Uh, the terminology we hear, as I mentioned before, it could be things like engagement, involvement, emotional bonding is a terminology that gets used. Uh, but it's being captured primarily via web crawling systems that try to capture as much social media activity online uh, as possible. It's capable of not only capturing the, the quantity of conversation that's happening about any individual show or network, et cetera, but also uh, the direction in terms of positive or negative. And, and there's a variety of methodological approaches that are being taken to this um, in an effort to essentially provide a snapshot of, of the online conversation at any given point in time in a, in a way that's robust enough to essentially serve 
as a new currency. And we're actually seeing that happen. We're seeing many programmers make decisions now on the basis of this information about which programs to cancel, which programs to keep on the air. We're seeing advertisers increasingly use this in their decisions about where to, to place their advertising dollars. So it's an interesting migration away from the basic uh, exposure model of the past. Uh, and what's interesting about it is it, it can, in theory, be very platform neutral. That is, the old model of linking up a box to the TV is a very archaic way of thinking about television. Anyone who thinks about television probably thinks and recognizes that television is, a, is very much a sort of multi-platform experience now. And so now if the focus is on online conversation, it's, it's not an issue of whether or not um, you consumed it via an iPad or via an on-demand or via your DVR or whatever mechanism you use to consume it because it, all that matters is that you then reacted in some way in the, in the online space. Um, what's interesting about this, though, is that it's, as it's being, these, these services are being rolled out, we see a lot of assertions uh, about exposure-based relationships. I've found this interesting. I've been analyzing a lot of the, of, of the promotional and marketing materials associated with these, with these new constructions of the audience. Uh, for example, um, that it should serve as an indicator of your likelihood of watching again. So if you are somebody who talks online about a television program, that that is some meaningful predictor of whether you're going to watch that program again. Uh, or uh, as an indicator of the likelihood of commercial viewing. That is, uh, if, you are, if, you are the, if, if, you know, if a program exhibits a lot of online conversation, then that should be taken as an indicator that that program is probably performing better than another program in terms of whether or not uh, you're actually sitting through the commercials. Uh, now, what's interesting is at this point in time, and again, I think this tells us a lot about the sort of desperate state of the audience marketplace, is that when I interview the data provider and say, so you have research, right? That, no, we just we assume that this is the case, uh, and I found that's, and so there's a whole research program there, obviously, to be uh, to be uh, played with. Um, but uh, it's just interesting that those that, that you know this becomes the process by which this, these you know these these new constructions try to find a, their way into the marketplace is to try to sort of link them with some of the things that are traditionally being considered important. Uh, but, um, but so anyway, that's, uh, that, that was, struck me as, as interesting that these assertions are, are part of, of many of these services as they're put forth. And there's a lot of them. In fact, one of them began right here at MIT. Um, I got the logo there somewhere. Bluefin, Trender, Optimus, some of these companies may be familiar, but it just, I, I, just may, I just put this up here to sort of give you a sense of, and this, and this is an important thing to recognize. If you look at the history of audience information systems, the power, you know, the, the, the forces pushing towards monopoly are incredibly powerful. Um, nobody wants to be having to deal in multiple currencies at any given point in time. So there's very rare, brief instances where there's been any kind of competition in the television audience measurement business or the radio audience measurement business. Uh, you know, this was, this is what the online exposure measurement business looked like in, say, 1997. Uh, so inevitably, if, if history is any guide, what we see is we start to see this, um, you know, uh, start to consolidate into one or two providers. But this is, this is how fragmented this space is right now that is, is sort of a, um, a, a large number of entrants into, into this space trying to, uh, to, to capture this, this market. Um, 
Now when I get into, is this where I sort of try to get into some of the issues surrounding uh, issues of representation? Um, this keeps coming up, this notion of, compared to, compared to previous iterations of the audience, the notion of the audience as being part of a black box that, in fact, very often, um, in fact, what is, what is valuable and what is proprietary about these systems uh, is, needs to be kept secret. Uh, I mean, it, needs to, is, it can't be revealed even to potential clients. Uh, so the average stakeholder in the audience marketplace really doesn't know how this you know, audience involvement metric was calculated at all. And one part of, of the research I've been doing thus far is doing actual interviews uh, with the representative, sales representatives, uh, because it also turns out I'm a potential client for some of this stuff. So I say, okay, I sit down and they say, tell me, all right. And, and, and I, I, the best part is to see where they just clam up and I start asking you know, what I think are, are key methodological questions that someone who's buying this stuff should, should know. And uh, you're not allowed to, to know, essentially, how these, these constructions are created. Now, in some cases, I'm seeing in some of the stakeholders I've interviewed, um, that is a, a major issue for them. Uh, and they, they don't like that lack of transparency. Uh, but the other part of this that's important to recognize is that it's a, it's a, a, a much larger disconnect in terms of Background, skill sets, etc. Uh, this, this is an interesting quote from one of my interview uh, subjects. People who are qualified to come up with solutions are coming from a completely different direction from traditional media research people. There's no overlap in terms of skill sets, pedigree, etc. So it's a completely different vocabulary. Uh, the old model, everyone had some understanding of sampling and representativeness and, 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 and survey design and things like that. But now we're talking about people who are developing sophisticated web crawling uh, um, systems and algorithms, talking to traditional media people, and even if they probably could explain, you know, or allowed to explain exactly how it worked, these folks wouldn't understand uh, because it's again they're coming from completely uh, different places. So that will be interesting to see going forward is how significant a role this sort of gap plays in in in, in how far uh, these systems sort of uh, integrate themselves. Um, related to this, there are some issues about how cultural influence essentially gets redistributed through systems such as these. Uh, any system of representing the audience runs into issues of misrepresentation or possible misrepresentation. Uh, in the old Nielsen television rating system, it was issues of, for example, or the, you know, the, the status quo, issues of, for example, um, Spanish language audiences not being adequately represented in the sample, or issues of older audiences not participating effectively once they were recruited. Uh, so there's always been issues of, of who is and who is not being well represented by these systems. And of course, the concern is then then their voice is not being effectively heard in terms of being adequately represented to advertisers and adequately represented to the programmers who then make the decisions about what gets um, put uh, on the networks and what does not. So obviously the ripple effect here is the possibility that if you're not well represented in the audience information system, you're not going to uh, be programmed to uh, and receive the content that re reflects your particular interests. Now the concerns are somewhat different because now we start to get into the, the question of, well, uh, how does a system that relies exclusively on online conversation adequately represent, or is that generalizable to the television audience as a whole? And does that even matter anymore? It's my, the, the sense I'm having in the interviews I've done thus far is that's not even 
a concern to the same extent that it traditionally was. And we'll talk later about some possible reasons for that. But now there's at the basic level of access, who has internet access and who doesn't. Obviously, if you don't have internet access, you are not a part uh, of this measurement system. Under the old measurement system, even if you didn't have a phone, uh, because it was, the sampling was done geographically and with uh, using census blocks and things like that, um, you would still have the, uh, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity to be included. But now, obviously, if you, are, if you are not online, you are not at all part of, of this particular audience information system. So that's one layer in which is a whole strata of the population that does not get their cultural preferences uh, accounted for uh, in these systems. Uh, then there's the issue of participation. Well, okay, and again, I may, you may be asking yourself this question. Do I go online and, and comment about TV shows? And if you say no, well, then guess what? Um, you better start because it's possible that uh, there won't be any shows for you anymore. You need to start talking up your shows uh, because you didn't know that when you were online you were creating this kind of valuable data. Uh, but, you know, just some, some you know, useful, you know, important bits of information. It's, it's interesting to know, for example, and a lot of these services rely very heavily on data from Twitter, but yet 10% of Twitter accounts produce roughly 90% of the tweets. Uh, so there's sort of a very vocal uh, minority who, uh, on any topic. Uh, and a lot, also very interesting is a lot of these services are not able to uh, incorporate uh, Facebook data. Uh, Facebook has not allowed their, their data to be incorporated. Now that obviously tells us you know, that there's a, a, a particular gap there. And it remind, it's, it's, it's reminiscent of what we saw for years and years and years, for example, in the book publishing industry, where the bestseller lists, uh, the, sounds, uh, the book scan bestseller lists, Walmart would never grant access to their data. So whether it was, for a while it was uh, SoundScan as well. BookScan, SoundScan, these measures of popularity in music and books never were able to gather information from one of the, obviously, the most significant retailers for those kind of products. So you sometimes have these kind of gaps, which, you know, the implications could be, could be substantial. Uh, so, but again, as I'll talk about later, the, the, it doesn't seem to be generating the kind of concern that you might expect. Uh, but what we see thus far is that it's a system that overrepresents young males. Young males apparently love to go online and talk about television shows. Uh, so they, they, they're, they're the data that are driving this bus right now. Uh, and obviously an overrepresentation of, of television enthusiasts. This was always an issue. People, you, I used to always raise this question with my students, say, would you, would you be willing to be part of a Nielsen sample? And they would say, no, I don't really watch TV. I'd say, but see, that's the point. The sample needs to have you in there as much as it needs to have the person that sits in front of the TV all day. Uh, this system obviously doesn't account for that. It's, uh, it's, 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 it, again, it's, it, I always try to do this with, the, with this project to sort of to, to look to relevant historical analogies. And in this case, uh, it's, it's a reminder of, of sort of the very earliest days of radio audience research, uh, where in fact the, the system was take all of the mail that we receive, categorize it by like the show, didn't like the show, and weigh it. Uh, and if you got three pounds of positive mail and you only a half a pound of negative mail, that was a good sign. Uh, and the, you know they would consider that to be. A, you know, and, and what that of course tell it, it creates is a situation where only the those who feel passionately positive or passionately negative uh, are represented in the system. And in fact, it was very interesting. Be, there were some early BBC radio audience research that did just that. That compared the letters. 
that they received. Uh, and they subsequently did an actual, a survey of all listeners and found exactly it was that sort of apathetic, mildly satisfied middle uh, who, who was actually of the largest sector of the, of the listening population uh, and obviously not re represented well uh, by, the, by the letter writing system of audience measurement. Uh, but we have something similar here where it's, again, those people who are sufficiently motivated, sufficiently mobilized to go online and talk about programs that are generating this, this, the new currency uh, that's, that's increasingly uh, you know, gaining a foothold uh, in, the, in this marketplace. Now, getting to issues of um, you know, how this is, is becoming integrated, uh, I, I mentioned this before, it, it's sort of an indiscriminate marketplace in this point uh, that I'm not, I'm not getting yet from the, the many of the conversations that I've been having um, a strong concern about any of these potential methodological shortcomings. As one of my interviewees told me, I don't know anyone that really cares. Um, uh, another one said, everyone pretty much accepts the limitations uh, at this point. Uh, and, I, and I think it was all well summarized by, by one interview who said, all this stuff is not research to know, it's research to show. Uh, which, it's, you know, cynical, but again, tells us something about the state of the, of the marketplace right now. That is, um, there's sort of this information vacuum that everyone is looking to fill, and if it can fill the vacuum in a way that, that serves their interests well, then they will embrace it. Uh, and there hasn't been yet that, that sort of shaking out of any kind of, this is, will be our ob objective standard that we employ going forward. Uh, but again, to me, this is a, a reflection of, 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 you know, it's almost, it's, it illustrates why we're at, you know, I, when I make that assertion, that we're at one of those unique points in time uh, where um, the, the conditions are such that um, there's, a, a, you know, flux, a, a real dramatic change can take place. Um, but on the other hand, I'm also, I, there is issues what I call institutional inertia. And this relates to issues such as information overload and complexity. Uh, the, the data flows alone and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and what we often find in, the, in this space is that people very seldom are able to take advantage of the full capacities of these analytical tools that are put in front of them. So they tend to get used in very simplistic ways. Uh, but uh, I, I thought this quote was sort of telling in, in a lot of ways. Um, if, if you talk to a TV buyer, the margins are low, organizations are streamlined, additions of new metrics make their lives miserable. They just want to keep doing things the way that they know. Uh, and they don't have the resources to do things 10 different ways. So as this sort of approaches to audience understanding become more diversified, it does bump up against this, uh, these sort of resource issues. And as Another uh, interview candidate told me, when you're the leader, you don't need to use alternatives. And that really illustrates what we're moving towards is almost sort of a, a two-tiered system. And again, to take back to the sort of the, the long tail uh, theory, basically everybody in the tail is in the position of needing alternatives. Those in the head um, aren't in that position. But that's the key difference now versus in years past. Those folks in the tail, in the aggregate, represent a larger audience than the head. And so the, 
the sort of essentially the market is there to serve them. Uh, and that's why we see that huge array of content of, of providers of these kind of services uh, erupting because the tail is long and there's a lot of people in that tail and that's where all of this demand is. And in the aggregate, that tail is, represents uh, you know, an accumulation of audience that is uh, now larger than the accumulation of audience in the head. So that's all this, that, that's all the dark matter. That's all the invisible audience, all going essentially unvalued. So the, the institutional uh, you know, pressure there for, for something that serves them better is quite powerful. Um, taking this into some of the implications, one that I find interesting is that in some ways, and, and it's always interesting to talk to audience researchers, audience research field broadly defined has, has been sort of always characterized by particularly issues of, you know, value of qualitative versus quantitative research. And on one level, you would argue, well, this is kind of interesting because this is reflective of the notion that, you know what, um, these systems need to take into account some of the more qualitative dimensions of the audience experience. But of course, it's once again being reduced to fairly, uh, you know, quantitative uh, indicators. But I'm reminded of some, some early discussions of, of audience research here. Uh, and in fact, it, there was a very, in the very earliest days of audience research, there was a very tight industry and academic connection. And that went away fairly quickly. And in fact, the nature of audience research evolved fairly quickly. And this was you know, back, back in the 1930s when, in fact, at, the, at its origins, it was focused on issues like appreciation uh, and, and engagement. Uh, and if you look at this quote, we've lost sight of our primary purpose for measuring radio programs. What we really want to know is not how many persons are listening. The real information we desire is to know how much influence the program in question is exerting on sales. So this is an effects question as it relates, obviously, to the audience marketplace. Uh, and then there's this issue from, this quote from Paul Lazarsfeld, uh, who was a pioneer, obviously, in, in audience research. Uh, Questions of preference in radio research have been almost discarded in favor of actual listening figures. And that was sort of the, the other major, one of the other major sort of times in the evolution of audiences where this move towards exposure uh, took place. Um, and so I find it interesting that after all of this time, there's almost a, a pressure to move back and just to reconceptualize the audience, the institutionally effective audience, in ways that are in fact reflective of how it was conceptualized in, the, in, in some of the earliest days uh, of audience research. And then the, 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 the real big picture implication, which this is obviously a direction I want to, to go a bit further in, uh, and as, you know, with this project needless to say, is what does this mean for diversity of content? Or do we have a set of conditions that's actually going to encourage greater diversity of, of content? Or do we, is this represent a set of conditions in place that's going to uh, discourage uh, diversity of content? Uh, on the positive side, you could argue that if we have a marketplace where there are a greater diversity of success criteria, where in fact sort of audience size would stand alongside audience engagement, audience involvement, emotional bonding, whatever terminology we choose to use, that that could move us away from, and I, I steal this term from, uh, from an article by, by Neil Gabler, the tyranny of 18 to 34, where that notion of you know, the size of that audience group is, was the key driver of, of cultural production. Uh, Presumably a marketplace where there are more ways of succeeding could potentially be one in which the, you know, the, uh, 
The niche program with the small but loyal audience has a greater chance of succeeding financially because in fact, I, presumably or hopefully, that is the, exactly the kind of audience that chooses to go online and discuss that show with all, and, you know, quite extensively. And if that were the case, then suddenly there's a model in place for that kind of content to, to succeed where previously there was not. Uh, or do we, is, is, is the issue of diversity of participation uh, have, a, have an overwhelmingly negative effect? Oops, sorry, not done quite yet. Uh, and in the idea that, in fact, well, we're actually seeing some of these patterns of misrepresentation repeat themselves here, and in fact, this sort of insufficiently diverse pool of people who's engaging in this kind of activity is going to essentially cause a, uh, a replication of, of, of some of the patterns of, of, of misrepresentation that we've seen in previous constructions of the audience. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I can't say for sure yet which direct, you know, which the overall effect is going to be, but I think it's, 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 it's an important question when we think about the processes that drive uh, the production of, of, of culture. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I blog on this to ad nauseum uh, if you want to visit that. And uh, again, any, any questions would be happy to take. Okay, this is being recorded, so um, questions need to go in the mic. Um, questions? Thanks. That was really interesting. Um, I just wanted to go back to one of the issues on one of your earlier slides about um, how the sort of the, the new metrics of engagement um, could be seen as platform neutral because they sort of approach the actual. This is my understanding, at least, because mm -hmm. they approach the, the the audience's engagement with the content of the material that they're viewing, and therefore, no matter what platform that content is being viewed through, mm -hmm. the engagement, the emotional attachment, all of these issues would would sort of operate in, in equal ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there, there may also be a, a sort of wrinkle to that in that the actual platforms that audiences choose to engage with content through, they sort of suggest different levels of engagement and investment. I mean, right. it, it takes a lot more effort. Uh, BitTorrent audiences are often seen mm -hmm. as the bad audience that doesn't pay, they don't watch right. advertisements. It takes a lot more effort to download a show by locating a live file on a tracker, yeah. Uh, pulling those bits down through the distributed network, sometimes recompiling parts of a file into a viewable video file, and then watching that. <laughs> uh, it, it also requires sometimes, you know, hooking up different kinds of technology yep. compared to somebody who's yeah. flipping through channels and, and stumbles on a rerun. Right. A lot more effort has gone into the, the sort of former platform approach. Yeah. So is there a way that these metrics can kind of integrate that sort of understanding, or is that hard to generalize? Yeah, and that's such an interesting point, because in, indeed we see that too. We see valuations of audiences very, very, you know, significantly by platform. And it's, and it's, you know, just to, you know, related to that, for example, Nielsen has put forth, made available quite, for quite some time now, a, um, a cross-platform C3 rating. And the, and the idea is that you could know the size of your audience online and on television in a, in a combined rating. And in fact, most of their clients have have refused to subscribe to it because they don't want to lose out on the ability to differentiate the pricing of their audiences by platform. That in fact they are able to get a higher cost per thousand in the online space increasingly. Uh, so, and this system, right, a system where it's all you know is people what what programs people are talking about, and you lose that information about where they consumed it initially. Uh, and so, 
and that and it has been proven to be a source of value. Uh, some of the systems kind of interesting. Some of the systems are, are very specific about, about being able to, which I find interesting. Um, sync up uh, and, and Bluefin is an example of this, where it's, it not only gathers information about the online conversation, but it's actually gathering information about about the, the programming. So it can link up that this com these comments were made in the in the minutes after this happened, and so that they could give you that kind of granular feedback on, on what kind of uh, you know, audience response a particular aspect of a program got, for instance. Now the part about that I find interesting is that it's, it sort of represents a notion of simultaneous viewing still, which is obviously not the case anymore. But what research has recently found you know, in, in support of that is that in fact that social media in general seems to be driving more live television viewing. So it actually seems to be moving people away from their DVR and their on-demand systems. The main reason that people give in, in, in when they're asked is that someone on Facebook is going to spoil the ending for them anyway, so they have to watch it live. But then, So that's one aspect of it, but the other aspect of it is wanting to be able to participate in these live sort of communal processes that are increasingly accompanying um, these programs. But, uh, but absolutely, that, that the, as, as constructed, these systems aren't able to capture that differentiation in, in engagement that presumably comes from, from the different platforms. That ironically, the older system can still capture. Hi, so this is, this is a great talk. Um, so I don't know if you might have actually been the author of this, but I'm thinking of um, this article that, uh, that Oscar Gandhi had us read. This was you know, eight, eight years ago um, when I was doing my MA at Penn. And um, it was an article about uh, the differential pricing um, in radio. I did write that. You did write it. I planted him. Is, uh, I told him that. <laughs> no, seriously. Question. So th this, this, this article blew my mind. So this article basically uh, looked through the uh, trade literature around the different prices that radio uh, had for white male eyeballs, black male eyeballs, white female eyeballs, black female eyeballs. And so you can actually calculate the differential value that the system places on people based on gender and racial categories, mm -hmm. um, which are constructed, but then reified and then this is this is of course then drives the the funding that goes into the content production could you talk a little bit more about uh, racial and gender construction in the new regime of audience information systems how does that change how is it the same how do you see that kind of going from your research it's interesting that at this point that, that I, I was almost surprised in fact that in data that look at to what extent different for example minority groups are represented in the online space and in the social media space, specifically talking in this case about television, um, it's proportional, uh, which, I, which I, was, I was sort of surprised about. Um, but it doesn't get at that other issue of whether that is a representative proportion of that audience, right? if you follow me, right? Because yes, okay, for example, it showed that Yes, 13%, if I remember the data correctly, something like 13% of African-American males represent some 13% or so of the population, but they're also 13% of the people discussing television programs online. That's fine, but that, what we don't know is if that online population is in fact representative of, of the broader African-American television viewing population. So there's, there, there's some layers to that there. Um, but 
Okay. I'm asking a little bit of a different yeah. question, which is, so we have from the previous uh, audience information regime interesting data yeah. about the way that that regime uh, re reproduces racial value valuation mm -hmm. by assigning differential prices on yeah. different eyeballs. Right. And I'm wondering about what do we know from the new audience information regime? So in other words, yeah. I'm Tommy Hilfiger, huh. right? And my desire to target market is white males between 34 and 35, pro probably with a whole bunch of other stuff because right. it's much more complex now. But I find through these metrics that I'm reaching, uh, di you know, a different different audience by race and age, you know, demographics, and then I pay less to the programmer. I mean, I guess I'm I'm interested about do we have new sources of data around the differential pricing on audience eyeballs by race and gender categories? Well, that's what I was going to go to next. Is in fact most of these systems are, and you might argue this is actually a good thing, are incapable of distinguishing detailed demographic information about these folks who are engaged in these online discussions um, because the, the information is not there. So for example, um, you know, posts on a lot of this they pull from, you know, let's say it's uh, you know, a discussion board site like Television Without Pity or something. And you might have your handle and you post your comments and all that is being pulled and aggregated but you, your, your demographics uh, are not knowable uh, in those cases. So most of these services, at, at the very, at, at the most detail they're able to give is men versus women. So it, I think it's kind of interesting in that, in fact, what if indeed demographics start falling away from the equation of what makes programs valuable? I mean, that, these services have the potential to, 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 to push things in that direction because they're, they're, they're not able to capture that kind of information that would allow. So I haven't seen that kind of research yet because I don't think it, it can be done yet, um, pulling from these after. systems. Yeah. At, uh, I don't know, if I, am, I, am I catching what you mean yet or no? <laughs> uh, hi, thanks. Uh, very interesting. Um, my question is, uh, maybe it's more of a meta question. I'm, I'm trying to get more of a sense of, of where you want to go with this. And, and I'm... I guess the reason I ask is I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is the, the desire that we get a, a sort of perfect representation of the audience and sort of then what happens? Uh, you know, I guess that's what I'm wondering, like where, where does the evolution, where should we be pushing this evolution towards? And as someone, you've been thinking about this a long time, and I'm, I'm curious how you see your work, where, where is your work trying to push uh, the, this, this world? I don't. I, I, I don't begin from any from from the notion that that's achievable at all. Uh, this is this is far too calm. You know what I'm saying? And and, and 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 if let's put it this way, if it wasn't achievable in a, in a world of, of of everyone watching the same three networks, <laughs> it's it's never going to be achievable. I mean, and, and there are there are paths that are being traveled. Whether it's using cable set top boxes, whether it's you know you know embedding things in your watch or your cell phone, et cetera. Uh, my work, what I'm interested in, is always being able to identify these issues of, of who, who might not be well represented in these processes uh, and what the implications of that for, for content production are. Uh, I'm doing, for example, I, I'm working on another project uh, where we're actually going to do the, what I, I think is going to be the really first detailed assessment of how all sorts of online ratings panels are constructed. Uh, again, this has been one of those sort of black boxes that's been tough to penetrate, uh, but um, we're, we're working on essentially um, a detailed methodological assessment of, of, of how these panels are constructed, how are they recruited, what are their existing strengths and weaknesses, so that we again gain an understanding of, because 
you, can, you can't really even overestimate to the extent to which this information gets used in decision making and is incredibly influential and doesn't always, it, it, there isn't always an accompanying discussion about these kinds of, sh of shortcomings. There, you know, you make a more representative panel, but then the ways that these, the data is used to still say, well, let's get the rich white males. You know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, that's what I, that, I, how do you push that side of the equation, I guess? I don't know how you push it. Uh, yeah, I, I never really thought of my work in this area, you know, sort of as a, from an advocacy standpoint. Some of the work, as Sasha's pointed out, sort of has, has been useful in that way when it illustrates these things. Uh, like I said, from my standpoint, you know, with, with, with this particular pattern that we see, that to me is, is, is something that's encouraging about it, which is suddenly it becomes closer to uh, a little bit more democratic in that, once again, it's, these are not systems that can differentiate online commenters by how much they earn or the color of their skin or, you know, or only in some cases their gender. So if we're, if we're back to a system where just sort of the expression of online enthusiasm is the currency that drives cultural production, that that could potentially be beneficial in that it, it, it sort of is, is blind to some of the other criteria that have, and now again, and we think of that as a given. We think, oh, well, it's always been demos, but you know, it's, you go back to the 1970s and it, you know, in the television context, it was households. And that was it. There was, so there was this historical moment where there was this kind of granularity and it had very, you know, and it was had very, you know, pronounced effects. Uh, but what I, I, in some of the interesting you know, discussions I've heard as of late in, from industry professionals is that there's been a willingness to even think about returning to that, to sort of, sort of undifferentiated households. So, so the process can go in directions that I wouldn't even necessarily expect it. But I, but so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that that is a, a, def, a defining component of, of, of how audiences are constructed. It was a, it was a defining component, uh, you know, an illustrative component for a particular historical period uh, and may in fact go away. Um, thanks very much, I enjoyed that. Uh, one of the questions that uh, it sparked in my mind is, uh, uh, we're in the era where personal data is becoming a huge commodity yeah. and collecting it and refining the processes for looking at it in various ways uh, has incredible value for all different kinds of purposes other than cultural production. And uh, Just to take one specific example, I'm thinking of uh, political production. So uh, have you encountered uh, political uh, uses of information <laughs> or the desire to construct uh, systems for evaluating uh, political audiences? <laughs> and, and voter possibilities and trends and so forth. And Absolutely. And in fact, it was one, at one point I was interviewing a, a Nielsen executive and they had just come back from D.C. Um, trying to, to sort of sell uh, the, the administration on what's called Buzzmetrics, which is a service that Nielsen provides, which is yet another, and, and the idea being that as he explained it, you could, you know, put out, give a, give a speech tonight and you could absolutely chart the nature of the online conversation that, that follows and what, what concepts resonated well, what concepts didn't. Um, the, the political, it's, 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 a, it's a perpetual 24-7 nationwide focus group. Uh, but, and, and it gets, it then raises those interesting questions all over again, right? In terms of how does that conversation map onto the voting population? 
Um, but and it would be very interesting to know. It was funny because I had done some research a number of years back specifically on political media buying, and the pattern is always one that they are in fact because they're even more resource poor generally when it comes to political campaigns uh, than, um, than, than than the commercial sector. And most political media buying is historically done by interns, uh, which I didn't know until I did this. And so. Any, any of these issues that we think might, you know, in other words, any, any sort of misuses or underuses of this or, or, or lack of understanding of its strengths and weaknesses is likely to even be more pronounced when it's applied within the context of, of political campaigns. If, again, if history is any, uh, any indicator of the patterns that we've seen before. Uh, but, oh man. Maybe know. an extension of that is in some of these uh, media, new media markets, uh, the, the fact that they reach into other uh, uh, national sectors and so forth, and the gathering of information on people mm -hmm. through these same processes uh, that are sort of uh, pioneered in uh, ratings of uh, sort of uh, cultural for cultural pr uh, production. But uh, I'm just wondering if uh, are, are, are there problems that you see emerging, uh, say, in, I don't know, analyzing audiences in Georgia or uh, Soviet Union or uh, Russia or wherever? Uh, uh, what kinds of trends are, uh, is this, uh, this whole uh, regime, uh, what kinds of trends do you see out there moving in these kinds of directions? Are there? I would say uh, we, our, our, our system is, 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 has in this area in particular tended to be a fair bit ahead. Right, so, um, I, 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 yeah, I think I'd be hesitant to, to say I know, you know. There are the, here, right? Yeah. Oh, you're talking about in terms of, of, of privacy protection? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about protections on data collection and so oh. forth. You can only do it in certain ways. But, see, but this is the thing no. with this. This is, this is data that we've all, we've just made public. Right. Um, and, that, and, and again, a lot of these services don't have the kind of personal data that we normally, personally identifiable information. Mm -hmm. These are these instances we've already decided to, to go public with our statements. Uh, so you, know, you, you, you say it on Twitter, these are things that we've actually wanted to make public. These are, this is us broadcasting our opinions of last night's episode of, of whatever. Uh, and so from that regard, it's, it's really truly, they're operating on, on sort of true public domain type of information. So that in that regard, they're very different from some of the things that are, that are happening, you know, specific to the online space, for example, and how your targeted advertising is delivered to you uh, on, you know, via websites. That's, that's, that's a level of, of, of granularity at the individual level that, that these kinds of services, at least yet, right, at least yet are, are, are not able to extract. Uh, this may be a variation on, uh, is this working? This may be a variation on questions you've already heard from Ian and, and uh, others. Um, but if I understand at least one essential strand of your, arc, of your presentation, um, you're exposing or, or uh, dramatizing the extent to which inadequate measurements and, in, uh, and uh, inadequate uh, systems of measuring segments of the audience lead to a situation in which particular subgroups in the audience are completely missed. And the argument then s says that this is, a, this is a terrible thing because the content that's produced is produced for the audiences that are measured. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. But isn't it possible that one could say that this whole system of audience measurement is the source of the difficulty with the pr content production? 
That is to say that if content is driven by audience measurements of this sort, even if they, and maybe especially if they become more granular, the consequences will be not uh, sort of an enlargement of intellectual or thematic or moral or civic diversity in our content, but a much narrower sort of focus on using these audiences to sell them products. No, absolutely. In fact, I have a chapter in my book called The, the Rationalization of Audience Understanding, where I actually try to put that, that concern into, into some historical perspective. Um, I did one interview I thought was very interesting. Excuse me, yeah. but so, so that, in other words, it's really not part of your argument to say that it would be an, uh, an unalloyed good thing to have all these segments of the audience measured? No. I'm, I, 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 at this point, I'm at a point where I'm... I'm Looking at the, the possible directions, uh, I, yeah, it's, it, I don't think any, no, absolutely not. Um, but what I was thinking, when you brought it, made me think of a, an interview I did with a with one, one sales executive who said, you know, when they when there were no ratings, he said I could sell anything, and it was an interesting idea that you know, of the value of information vacuums, of the value of of ignorance essentially, uh, and that it, it could actually you know. It could, it, 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 it could allow who knows what to potentially uh, thrive. Um, but, and, and in this case too, like I said, this is, this is part of a, of, a much of, of a much longer process and what it represents is sort of a move in a, in a change of track, right? Uh, in terms of what's, what, what the points of focus are. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not trying to advocate that this is going to, to, to solve you know, particular problems because it, it seems possible it could actually replicate or even compound some of the problems we've often had uh, with with the existing system. But at the same time, it, we have you know, it is a such a defining characteristic of how our of our, our media system operates at this point that, and this goes not just to issues of, of television ratings, but how content is developed. Uh, an effort to impose these sort of scientific processes or pseudo-scientific, you would you'd probably even more, more appropriate term, on every phase of the, of, of the development of, of content. And in some cases, uh, you know, I think potentially, of course, to, to some harmful, harmful effect. Whether it's uh, how motion pictures are developed, whether it's how music is developed, and increasingly, like I said, there's and now so much information is available, appears to be available so easily. Uh, you can go online and, and you can, you know, type in some search terms to Twitter and suddenly you're convinced that you've got the, the pulse of America on a particular topic. Uh, the CEO of Hulu, swear, his, 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 his key to his strategy says that every 20 minutes he goes on Twitter and types in Hulu. And that every 20 minutes, if he does it every 20 minutes, he can keep a, a, a pace of everything that's being said about his company. Uh, and he says he uses that information, it's, it's vital to him. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, to me, it's just, it's just a defining characteristic of these sectors. This it's almost insatiable demand for this kind of uh, audience feedback. And yet, it, it, you know, it, it contrasts with early days of, of the motion picture industry or other industries where my favorite quote what was a studio executive who said his market research was, if my fanny itches, then it's no good. You know, if he's sitting in the seat, and uh, that was, uh, I think it was, you know, Louis B. Mayer, Sam Cohen, thank you, right, from 1920-something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and that, you know, that, that to me is sort of was the, was the starting point for, for this book. And then I tried to sort of progress through there and then all the way up to, you know, um, how much you tweet about, uh, you know, Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, thank you. And I have a speculative question about your model of uh, audience uh, process, uh, and it's a two-part question. The first one, the nutshell version, is just uh, how do how do you in, uh, incorporate a, a model of well, in the well, buzzword of interactivity, but more specifically, I mean, you already look at things like uh, delays, channel ch uh, mm -hmm. delayed watching, channel changing, et, et cetera. But, uh, but uh, for example, in, in the uh, early 2000s, worked as an interactive TV producer, and, and so you have Forrester's coming out with the idea of, uh, uh, of lazy interactivity. So essentially, you can uh, click and buy Jennifer Aniston's sweater like, yep. as, as you're watching because you, yeah. you, you like it or order a pizza. And, and some of the kind of recent work that we've been doing in, in in uh, game studies where you can say, actually track uh, a very tight feedback loop, back loop, not yeah. the conversational feedback loop you're talking about say, on something like Twitter, but say every action that somebody p takes within a game, kind of like real time a capture of, of that data. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is how do you start to encompass some of these very tight feedback loops of user agency within the audience process model? And then following up on the other question is what do you do with it? Because I in, in games we start to say, do you customize for different player type mm -hmm. uh, uh, there? Does that expand uh, the audience? You actually try to change minds, change ideology, yeah. you know, move people from one play style to another, you know, think about, uh, yeah. say, violent interaction and move toward, towards more exploratory interaction. So, so, so essentially, right, how can you build in yeah. this tight feedback loop and then you know, what, yeah, where, where, yeah. where do you go from there besides just customization? Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I think with this, with this slide, I assume this is one you were, you were thinking about, right? I think everything on this side, to a certain extent, is that was, you know, interactivity is what drove all of that. Uh, and so this goes to things like, um, you know, we hear this terminology calibrated journalism even, right? That the kind of, you know, that news stories being evaluated by online news sites by how many comments that they generate and how well they're rated and shared and all of that. And so that's what's interesting about this to me is that essentially interactivity becomes becomes currency. Uh, and, and it's, it's I mean, there's a, a, this debate going on in the, in the marketing field right now about what the hell does it mean when somebody clicks like on, their, on, a, on a brand's Facebook page? And they're trying to extract the people, the really likers from the people who just clicked it. Oh, what does it mean? That is what, um, it's, yeah, I mean, this, again, this is, uh, you know, it's, um, so, and, it, and again, we, it's, it's so easy to, to, you know, to interact now. And now the question becomes, how do we distinguish the meaningful interaction, or at least those that we're going to treat in this case as, as some form of a currency from, from everything else? Um, what's the site that lets you, um, oh gosh, but you know, um, for later, you're on a website and you want to you know, go back to this thing later and it'll sort of, and, and now they're trying to, again, use that. Uh, some sites are trying to use that as a measure of engagement. Uh, you know, our stuff is often put in the, for, you know, for later. Uh, and again, does that necessarily mean that that, does that mean that person says, this is too long to read now, I'll put it here and maybe I'll never go back to it. Uh, so there are always these conflicting interpretations of this, of the, of this kind of information. Uh, but I think, I th I think inter interactivity, and, and this is sort of a point I made in the book, is, is, is a driver for all of these new um, you know, audience constructions. Yeah. I mean, a part of it is also the difference between, say, click clicking as, as yeah. interactivity. That's why I brought up the lazy interactivity yeah. example. But kind of real-time continuous interactivity. So like uh, measuring staccados or kind of just even movement of, of the remote control or yeah. playing a game kind of in real time. So that's yeah. the speculative nature of the question is, yeah. where does that begin to play in, into these models? And the other side of it is yeah. you know, going beyond customization. Uh, yeah. 
Um, let me just ask one. Oh, sure. I was really intrigued. You mentioned that your project had joint fund. Your one of your recent projects, joint funding from Warner's, but also from a European. Oh, there's no funding for the. In the, the, the they're just. I'm just presenting it and, and, and including oh, okay. it in their project. Yeah, no. Because the European thing is intriguing. Um, your your project was transforming audiences, transforming society. That's the cost initiative. Yeah, that this is going to be sort of part of it. It's going on in so many different countries and there's so many different components of it. And I was part probably of a predecessor project. I, I was reading project, about that. Uh, I was, changing yeah. media, changing yeah. Europe. Yeah. Right. So and they the like big, that little that little <laughs> title style. Well, yours sounds like it's drilling down and focusing yeah. and that's yeah. great. The big challenge in the project I led, and this is now, I don't know, eight years ago yeah. or five years ago, but it was really about the, the, the fate of the notion of the public sphere. Mm -hmm. European television is constructed around a notion of a public. Right. The opening of the floodgates in the late 90s to commercial TV, the American model, yeah. was really at odds with the notion of the public sphere model, yeah. which is there for the people. And of course, with all these, with this fragmentation of the market and the instrumentarium to understand the market, I'm just curious as to how that project, and how that project frames the public sphere and how your work mm -hmm. in any way relates to that European model as opposed to the American. Sure. I should emphasize too, I'm, I'm just a, a contributor. I'm not an, an initiate, I'm, you know, I'm a, a small cog in that, what seems to me a fairly massive uh, machine. But I think, I think within, in a particular way that, and that, what that project seeks to be, to, to be doing in part is to get to some of these issues of audience as public, audience as consumer, audience as, as commodity that I, I think are, that tie very much into this notion of how of how a public sphere functions, uh, and some and and in particular to take some of that work about audiences, that policymakers I think for for a number of years didn't recognize its policy relevance and make that case. Uh, and there and my sense is there's much greater uh, receptivity to that, not only in Europe, but here even in the U.S. as well, where, for example, the FCC is grappling with this notion, which is just fantastic to hear. They're, they're trying to understand how notions of diversity of participation, uh, their term, uh, should, should factor into their decision-making on a variety of policy issues going forward. Uh, so I don't know if that uh, answers the, the question. Well, I feel very naive in all of this, but because I feel like maybe some of the the head honchos who are making all these marketing or these de these decisions about how to do research should be like Descartes and put themselves in a in a bare room and start thinking and they what they'd come up with is whether there's such a maxim as I I watch therefore I buy <laughs> and I because I find it totally unconvincing to assume that because you even have an affective loyalty to a program you're going to pay much attention to the commercials although I from Looking at personal experience, I will say that if I watch a show regularly over a long time, I do become very aware of all the commercials I'm flipping away from during the breaks. Right. Uh, and I'm aware that those are the loyal sponsors of the show. Right. How much of the research that's done on this really gets into the nitty-gritty of to what degree does any loyalty of an audience to a program's content affect the purchases they make is is it all just naively assuming that if you're there for the third commercial you you're hooked and you're going to go out and buy it yeah and and the interesting thing is is that the system in place that can't distinguish between the audience for one commercial versus another the nielsen rating system has what's called the, the c3 is the average commercial rating for an entire program 
So, you know, maybe there's a really good commercial, you know, maybe there's an E-Trade Baby commercial everyone sticks around to watch. Well, that gets treated the same as a, I don't know what other kind of commercial that people turn, turn away from. Um, but there's a competitor that's actually trying to provide more granular information on that. But the other part of it, though, is not to lose track of is that increasingly it's, it's, le it's, it's as much about the product placement within the programs as it is the commercials. So that, that it's, to me, it's been in this interesting process of sort of the commercial skipping activity gives rise to a commercial specific rating, which in turn really gives rise, creates the really powerful incentive to better integrate the advertisements essentially into the content itself as a way to sort of reprioritize a concern with the content. Separate from, I mean, you know, these systems essentially are, 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 and online, of course, we see this to, an, you know, to, to, the, to the greater degree, to be able to disaggregate the content from the advertisement. And that's essentially what the DVR and the C3 rating allow. It's what, in the online space where the bulk of, of um, you know, advertising is based on some sort of action-based pricing, cost per click or cost per purchase, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, the, there are folks out there that try to actually estimate the number of, of online impressions that essentially go unmonetized, right? That essentially, because a lot of times we might see an ad and not click on it, no money changed hands, right? And, uh, and then there's that whole debate within the marketing community about whether that's appropriate or not. Couldn't that ad have done something? I don't, I don't in my own work, don't really, haven't had much of an interest in advertising effectiveness at all, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, I, I'm more interested in, obviously, how this relates to sort of to, to cultural production issues. Uh, but to, to going back to your, to your particular question, I would say that would be, that yes, nobody, nobody is sitting there with, with, the, with the, the kind of evidence you would like to, to, to support that assertion, but at the same time, I think they all are also operating on the assertion that, hey, a lot of what we're doing now is embedding our content into the, in our, our messages into the programming in some way, shape, or form, and that gives them reason to, uh, to concern themselves with this. Well, to, to pick up on that, I mean, to me, even more bizarrely, there, there's some, you, you sketch this space of contestation among mm -hmm. content providers, publishers, uh, you know, notions of audience construction, and there is, there's a stalemate. They're all sort of struggling to, Nielsen still survives because the alternative isn't there for all of them to leap onto. But at the same time, the, the dark matter, as you described it, the dark, the, the dark matter as audience is bigger than the main audience. So when I watch BBC News in the morning, I'm stunned every morning, like I, these guys aren't stupid, I'm stunned every morning to see like the Vegomatic being advertised instead of Porsche. <laughs> like someone somewhere has to know that it may be a small demographic or even an unmeasured demographic, yeah. but qualitatively, it's got to be a semi-interesting demographic. And because it's not valued, because there's not a metric for it, mm -hmm. Vegematic can afford the space. Yep. And that's stunning to me. It's stunning to me from the side of Porsche, who yeah. could buy that space cheaply. Stunning to me from the side of the BBC's yeah. sellers, who could, yeah. who should be able to mount some kind of credible argument. Yep. It's this, this Cartesian lapse somehow that's... And my bet would be in that case that Vegematic did not actually buy time consciously on BBC. Right. On the local system, and they're sort of buying in bulk, and the cable system is just spilling that ad over wherever they've got spare space. Uh, and 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 that's and that's important to recognize that we you know we sort of have this notion that at this point technology has facilitated this kind of hyper targeting of consumers across all these different platforms, and it's not the case at all. I mean, in the television space, there's this uh, organization, Canoe Ventures, which by now is supposed to have given us addressable advertising, so that we should all be seeing different television commercials based on our interests. And it's just run aground against something as simple as the fact that the average cable set-top box is a piece of crap and is not 
proven to be able to, 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 to facilitate that sort of, uh, of transaction. And so until we all get nicer cable set-top boxes in our home, the idea of this kind of targeted addressable advertising in the TV space um, is, 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 is further off than we all expected at this point. Uh, but yet, is, 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 you know, is presumably vital in order to essentially stem the flow of advertising dollars to the online space where that kind of addressability is there. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of shortcomings still. I was just going to say that I have noticed incredibly how now when you watch most cable programs, um, they have made it, they've obliterated any distinction between content and commercial. Um, there used to be a very clear, when yeah. I was a child, there was yes. a very clear barrier between the product and the advertisement and the program. Yes. And now a word from our sponsor and all that, yeah. so, and the black border and the, the silence. <laughs> And that, that just, you, well, sure, there's another kind of, in, yeah, and you watch I've Got a Secret and there's a Winston Carton on the front of the, the <laughs> panelist uh, table and all That's of that. Before my time. But the commercials in the dramas were set apart. And now the other part of it is that, as you say, this integration of product placement means that half of the commercials are the network promoting its other shows. Yeah. It's, and you start to get confused as to which show you're actually watching. <laughs> um, but that's just me. Okay. Well, you know why they do that, too, is that they've come, the research is showing that the increasingly, as TV consumers, especially because of all the platforms on which we consume television, increasingly people don't know what network their shows that they watch are on. You might have a favorite show. Yes, yes, people, what's your favorite show? And they'll tell you. And you say, well, what network is it on? And people don't know anymore. Uh, and so a lot of it is about trying to reassert some sort of brand identity, which they often still think is, is important. Again, again, it's because of DVR, you, it's because of we watch programs on demand, uh, we become disconnected from the, from the, from the source. So I, I started with a question, similar, a similar question, so I want to take another level then. So if the sort of the operating principle is, uh, I don't care how stupid I am if my competitor is equally stupid. Um, <laughs> as long as we're all operating on right, the same misconceptions. Right, so long as we're all stupid, it doesn't matter. We can yep. just pretend that we're doing real work here. Um, but... Couldn't there be some really f uh, fertile and uh, profitable field of research which spent more time looking historically? I mean, even recently historically, mm -hmm. like what did they do last week? What evidence do we have that what they did last week worked in terms of uh, which product, in other words, which products are succeeding and how can we, what can we analyze about the, their ad placement? And uh, I mean, in some ways, it seems to me that that'd be almost more worthwhile than, um, well, I think a lot of that is going on too, and a lot of it is is is. You know, I left them at home. Is, is is being driven, in fact, by all those little uh, plastic things on your keychain, right? All the uh, all the all the shopper cards. That's where the the major aggregation of actual purchasing data is happening. And we're actually in the third iteration in ten years of a company trying to actually link media consumption with product purchasing behaviors. And you would think, well, how could something like that go belly up twice in the past 10 years and we need a third try? And it's because it's essentially so methodologically onerous, uh, and really the issue is getting people to participate effectively, that the sample quickly gets so bad that even within this context of what I'm talking about, that the standards are fairly low, that this doesn't even cut it. Uh, and so, and so it's, 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 it's gone belly up uh, a, f a few different times. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, that, that would be my answer to why you know, it's, that's not more prominent in, the, in, in, in these sort of processes thus far. 
Thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, Larry Gross's book, Up From Invisibility, or Arlene Davila's uh, Latinos, Inc., um, or Kathleen Sender's Neither Fish Nor Fowl. So these are all stories that document the history of uh, a combination of social movements and marketing firms and ad buyers and content producers where you have this dynamic of groups that are invisible mm -hmm. in the broadcast TV space organizing. Going back even to Chan Noriega's book. Sure, yeah. to, to create, to, to convince the sets of people that need to be convinced that they're a viable market, which mm -hmm. simultaneously makes them then visible at their, you know, GLBTQ folks mm -hmm. or Latinos. So it simultaneously makes people visible as subjects in the broader American yeah. polity. And it also erases differences internally to those communities in the service of producing this broader aggregate market. Um, you're suggesting that the shift to the new metric system um, becomes blind to these questions. At least, I, I at get least back as to this, currently implemented right. is, is blind. So I want to get yeah. back, I, I want to yeah. just hear you talk more yeah. about that set of, set of concerns. So what, what is the relationship between the political strategy of asserting, um, you know, alternate subjectivities or moving from counterpublic that's invisible to a, to a counterpublic that at least is then uh, still subaltern but exists mm -hmm. within the broader discourse and the transformation of the regimes of audience metrics and not just not just what's happening now but the the broader oh, you know overarching from all you've seen through the different regimes of audience metrics like what do we what can what can we learn about that and how could we imagine it playing out in the future all right, that's a that's a big one. Let me think if I if I got this one if I understand what you're trying to get at. Um, I mean, in terms of what I see now, uh, I think it places within these contexts a value on a particular kind of participation. It almost makes me think of when you know we you know going back to September 11 that we thought we were supposed to express ourselves by shopping in New York, right? That okay, that's our form of of activism and to help the economy go out and, and shop, and it puts a a cultural, a political resonance on on these fairly mundane acts of blabbing online about stuff that interests us that I don't think most of us recognize. And I would imagine that going forward, that would be a, a something that we're going to see, you know, various sort of groups really recognize has has importance that your your online voice is is needs to be, is 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 being counted all the time whether you know it or not whether you want it to be or not um that i mean th i mean that's that's the initial reaction i have to what you were what you were asking but, uh, and you know going back historically that was always you know it sort of brings uh, you know it sort of brings to the forefront again sort of that that tension and that 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 sort of that that fallacy about the idea that there was something inherently democratic in the traditional model of well you watch this show and you cast your vote via what you watched and it's you know but of course as we knew and as as the study that uh, you referenced before illustrated uh, it's not a one person one vote system by any stretch of the imagination and it was sort of interesting going back to what you were talking about before too is it's funny as soon as that study was published right, it took a couple of years to get it done and get it published and within a year. Thing had had flip flopped. So that study actually showed at that point in time, for example, that uh, Hispanic audiences were valued on an individual basis less than African American audiences. And within two years of the publication of that study, that had actually flip flopped. And it was you know, and and, and because there was a lot of the kinds of activity that you're, you're talking about, and and that sort of was successfully 
orienting marketers and advertisers to the value of that particular audience. So there was a, a successful campaign had been waged, to, or I don't, again, successful might be a strong term, but a campaign had been waged that had had some tangible effect. And so that study in many ways was, you know, I was, you know, disappointed with it two years after it was done because that, that, that key dynamic of it had become different. We've been talking a lot about the fragmentation of the media ecosystem, about mm -hmm. the fragmentation of the metrics business, a lot of different paradigms, a lot of folks trying to duke it out with Nielsen that keeps, uh, Nielsen to me is a sort of, uh, has a proprietary uh, feel in this, uh, feeling about itself. Yeah, and it may end up that those all just get bought by right, Nielsen. They buy them off or kill them off or keep them <laughs> in corridor often. But there's a sort of maybe sub-layer to this that we haven't really talked about, and that's the, what the, pr the provider level. Like Comcast has a pretty interesting data layer yeah. at its disposal. Mm -hmm. And Comcast is also searching for markets. And increasingly, there's some contestation about who's going to, you know, who's putting out the advertisements. Uh, you mentioned how Comcast yeah. is, or RCN or whoever is, 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 in fact, distributing its ads across the, the yeah. dark matter space. So wh what's happening in that space? Are these people doing, using these existing um, metrics yeah. companies that you talked about? Are they developing their in-house ones? Their data streams may not be multi-platform, right. but the platform they have is still yeah. a very powerful one. Yeah. What they're working with are, in fact, that's a whole other category of, of measurement, which is set-top box measurement. The, and, and, the, and that was sort of put forth for a number of years as this holy grail of no more samples. A set-top box system would be a census-based system, right? That every set-top box could report back data on viewing. Now, it gets back to the issue of, well, how do you get the demographics? But there are ways that you could model it and et cetera. Zip code, I mean, you know that. Yep, you know zip practice. codes. They've, they've even they've developed uh, models that will say, well, look, if the TV is in this room and it's watching this show, that allows us to effectively predict with a fair amount of certainty that this person is watching it. Uh, so, so there are a number of, a lot of the cable systems and the satellite providers are partnering up with third-party measurement firms for, for set-top box measurement. Uh, now, but, and the reality of that, though, is it's not a census because it turns out in the average home, um, there might be three TVs and maybe only two of them are attached to set-top boxes. Uh, there's still 12% you know, of the population that receives all of their television over the air. Uh, so there are those kind of issues. But it is, it is, moving, right, it is, is moving in parallel um, to what I talked about here as sort of a mechanism for maintaining the primacy of the traditional exposure model. Uh, and, that, and, that, and again, that, that's to be, no one, no one is, that thing isn't just getting thrown out at all. And it's, 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 it's you know, there's a variety of, of efforts, and this is one of the major ones, to try to maintain its utility. Because if you go to a census model, then all of that content in the long tail can be, you know, accurately represented. Uh, the economic model in terms of where who who the ad buys would be done through. Mm -hmm. In terms of you talked about the slippage of branding with mm -hmm. ABC or yeah. NBC, yep. this really but, uh, circumvents. But all these systems still require some sort of third party. So Rentrack, for example, is a, is, is a big company in this space because it's you know in, you know in, in in this audience marketplace, no one still wants to buy an audience from a provider who also is the provider of the estimate of the size of the audience. So no one's going to say, oh Comcast, you said you had three million people watch that. Okay, I'll write you that check. Um, so there's still third parties involved. So this gives Twitter, to me at least, a surprising amount of influence. Yes. And I have sort of two questions, I guess, coming off of that. Um, Some of the metrics are specific to Twitter. Some of these folks will provide a, a, Twitter, a, a, a Twitter estimate, you know, ex explicitly. Yeah, I mean, and it seems like 
it's just yeah. so I guess you know you've talked a lot about um, the, the the blind spots in the in the social media focus in general, but mm -hmm. I guess the first thing I'm wondering is. Um, so within social media, are there things that you think are being overlooked that could be included in, in metrics? And then secondly, um, have you given thought to Twitter as a form mm. and the sorts of limitations that just come from the types of things that one can express through the genre of the tweet? All right. On the first question, it's tricky to answer because I, and that's one of the, I, you literally will sit down with the data provider and they say, we will, we're, we're, we're gathering information from you know, 400,000 different online platforms. I mean, they're just searching everything. So to say what, what should, you know, I think, they're, I think they're getting everything they can. And so I, I don't know the answer if, if, if there's anything that's being left out. Other than, like I said, that I know that, that Facebook manages to wall their content off um, uh, from, from, you know, from, from these services. So that, that, that's a tricky one. Um, but as far as that's what, we raised that question. We said, "What you know? What what what, what so, sort of I mean, I, I, I kind of sort of exhibit some of my bias coming yeah. at media studies from a literary background, yeah. but I, I just am always thinking. Oh, I know. Okay, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, sure. How does that? And that's what's interesting is they will explain. You know, they, they the processes in some cases are ones where you know they're using this sort of natural language. For some of them, some of them go out with key terms, which is kind of interesting. Some of these services say, "Look, these are the these are the terms we're going to go out and search for." Others just capture everything surrounding, if you've got a program, everything surrounding um, the, um, you know, the, the name of the program, for example, and they've assigned values to particular types of words. Uh, and, and, and to me, this, this has created such interesting points of entry for, you know, whether it's linguistics or, or whatever, to, to, to sort of, you know, interrogate this and see whether it makes sense. Uh, I was talking to one of the providers yesterday, and they said, yeah, we, are, we feel confident that we're able to based on the, the valence of individual words come up with a negative 10 to a positive 10 or maybe it was a 0 to 10 scale that maps incredibly closely to how many stars these programs are getting on I forget what site it was so so there there are different pro other ones though I, you know make the point that they think it's very limiting to expect, for example, or to require that the actual name of the program be used. So, so Bluefin is a great example of this. They say, look, you know, maybe you're watching the uh, Monday Night Football and you know, someone touchdown, and you and you, you know, and you tweet, unbelievable catch. Now, how is that associated with Monday Night Football? Their system, because it's it's mapped onto the actual program streams. They can, they can make that connection and they can make the assertion that that was, in fact, a tweet in response to Monday Night Football and should be included as in terms of the construction of the audience for Monday Night Football in that. And, and so there is this kind of methodological diversity out there. And I'm, of course, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm only able to describe the tip of the iceberg for it because, like I said, they won't tell me half the stuff that I want to know about, about how, about how this works. But... Uh, but so they're, they're approaching it very differently as far as that And goes. those measures, those real-time measures that track yeah. program development together yeah. with some of Nielsen's second, whatever, two-second span, what are their, they have a tracking thing that goes every couple of seconds. Yeah. Must be really interesting tools for scriptwriters to get. I mean, for analysts oh. to get to revisit programs and to they think can, about. Yeah, yep, they can assess exactly what sorts of things that happen in a program. Uh, they, apparently, they can, for example, <laughs> the two and a half men. Uh, they were able to, they, they, with, the, with their language processing system, they were able to know that 
people, you know, any reference to two and a half men, because the one thing they also do with these services is try to link it to people's product affinity. So people who, um, you know, watch two and a half men might like this particular beer or whatever, and they had to be able to, for example, to extract that. In fact, most of the references in two and a half men to Coke were not a reference to Coca-Cola, but were a reference to Charlie Sheen and his habits. And so <laughs> supposedly these systems are, are, you know, they're able to learn and yeah. to be able to, to make these kind of distinctions. So to go back, you mentioned a couple times that Facebook is walled off, yeah. but Facebook, in, in fact, seems to be quite interested in those kind of correlations mm -hmm. by tracking your yes. taste affinities online yes. and those of your friends. They just don't want to let third parties do it. They don't want to let third party <laughs> do it. Google is the other uh, un, so far unmentioned entity here mm -hmm. that is, has the potential to do something quite similar mm -hmm. in terms of the history of what you've been looking at. Um, any sense of what's happening in that space? Um, I've heard sort of rumblings that they very much want to get into the audience measurement business, and in what capacity, I, you know, that sort of remains to um, to be seen. But it, I, it, it's sort of happening. I think they've seen what's happened with Facebook, which is Facebook is actually becoming an interface. For example, uh, Facebook has actually started to partner with Nielsen. So, for if you want to know the effectiveness of an online ad campaign. Now Facebook is partnered with Google and they're using Facebook data and, and what sites you visit and what things you click that you like, et cetera, to create a, uh, uh, a measure of, of campaign success. Uh, and and I, it seems likely that maybe Google is hoping to use Google Plus in a, in a similar capacity. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, beyond that, I don't know. Great. Philip, thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>